Hello and welcome back to Constantine Monologue. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be discussing uh, Baptism of Fire, Chapter 5. And once again, I am joined by Joshua Rapier. Hello. Hello again. It's been so long. <laughs> yeah, grand total of a week. <laughs> so th this chapter um, is uh, the one where Geralt is called out on all his bullshit. Mm -hmm. And it is glorious. Yes, it is. It is the chapter that I always think of. Like it's Mandrake chapter in this chapter when I think of this book, as well as the final chapter because of a thing that you haven't got to yet. The obvious way is to go to Geralt. However, I want to start off talking about Ciri and her corruption arc with the rats. Alrighty. This this chapter has a particularly horrifying scene. Where she um, kills this guy and doesn't feel anything except she's really sad her cotton candy got ruined. Mm. So, what do you think of the entire Rats arc and series' slow descent into hell? The fascinating take place to take the character because, you know, the first few stories have been building up how she's destined for glory and yet she ends up here, uh, you know, falling under her own disguise as a different person. You know, she can. She could barely remember, you know, her, her real life, where she came from. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a real dark turn for her. You know, in, in some ways, it's good that she's, she's there instead of being actually under Emir's control, like uh, the country believes she is, you know, instead of the, mm -hmm. not knowing about the imposter. But it's like, you know, it's out of the frying pan into the fucking volcano, as it were. <laughs> yeah. She got thrown into a desert initially, so yeah, that's an apt metaphor. Yeah, too. So the rats are a large contentious thing. Some people really like the arc, some people don't. I really like the arc because redemption arcs are so common in fiction, but you'll rarely ever see a corruption arc. Mm. And uh, when you do, it's ne it's always... So, like, they're a bad person, and, like, we'll have the, the main characters go, oh, you've done horrible, horrible things. No one ever really calls Siri out on what she does here. Mm. Um, She is in the moment, reacting in the moment. Uh, this is all she is, and it's a brilliant twist, I think. Um, And uh, everything with Missile is just so horrifyingly disgusting, and that's what makes it... So icky the 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 way mm. through, and that's why this th this arc is just so impactful. It's because nothing good can come out of this, and yet it's necessary for Siri to grow as a person. And so you just you feel so bad for her, and uh, th you know that there's nothing like you can do. Uh, one clever thing he's done for a while is every time we flash to her with the rats. In this, most of the time, he never refers to her as Siri. Uh, and when he does, um, you know, he, it's very, it's a very small bit where it's internal. But a lot of the time, she is, she is being viewed from the outside. So she's the the flaxen haired girl. She's the mm. uh, she's the green eyed girl. And all we see is what she does. Not her internalizing it. The dance scene from a couple chapters ago is the only time we really got to see her internally in this moment. And she shed a tear because that was signifying that that is the death of Ciri. She is now Falca, much like her ancestor that went crazy. Mm. Um, and here, this always sticks out to me because 
It's such an innocuous scene. It's a small scene. Ratchet affair. All fine and dandy. Homophobe comes up to her. Starts chastising her. She immediately murders him. Feels nothing. In This is in comparison to the girl who threw up when she killed someone last book. Hmm. Um, and um, is the saddest thing about the entire thing was my candy floss. It fell on the ground. It's ruined. And you just feel this sense of melancholy apathy, I guess, of just hmm. you don't know what to do and you don't know how to help her. And it's just so sad because this is this is the inevitable fallout to someone who's been treated the way she's been treated. Yeah, it's a real corrupted childhood she's had that it's kind of mm-hmm. she's reverted and it's it's really twisted. Mm-hmm. And it makes you really think about can Siri at this point be redeemed? Is she too far gone? And is there an inch of Siri still there? Is she just Falka now? Um, and it's a small innocuous scene, but it really grabs grabs a hold of you. So what is your thoughts on the way that scene plays out and the, the whole arc in general? Well, I believe the conclusion of this will be she will be eventually reunited with Geralt. Uh, but now with this chapter, there's the extra spanner in the work, so if Kahir will be tagging along. So I'm guessing this shock of seeing you know, her father figure as well as the man who represents her nightmares it, at the same time. I imagine that's going to be a, a shock to the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think she'll ever be the same way, you know, the same child we met in Brooklyn. Uh, but, you know, childhoods never last. Char- characters will go, and she's certainly you know, been pushed over that edge into that kind of growth. Uh, mm-hmm. Or in, this, in the case of the rats, more like pushed into a ditch and kind of just left, you know, yeah. swading through uh, the mud and the filth. Uh, so I'm hoping Geralt will be the, you know, the hand to pull her out of there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with Siri, it's more, we talked about in the past, how more it was the video games that made me more aware of the franchise. So I know I haven't played the games, but she's quite, that image of a grown-up Siri is very popular online. Yeah. Uh, so I know that's kind of the end game she's going towards, as well as the hints you've given me about, uh, you know, her true destiny, shall we say, for, you know to get a grander word in there. Mm-hmm. So th- this will be a, this is a, you know, a huge bump in the middle of her, her journey. Uh, but I guess I'm more curious about where the, the, where, where the rest of the rats are going. Cause you know, I know nothing about them reading the book was my first time knowing about their existence. So with their, with them, I've, you know, I have the benefit of not knowing their fates, unlike the main characters. For the podcast listeners that know, just Im- imagine my amused smile. Oh, <laughs> if you know you know <laughs> but i'm guessing uh one or two of them will have some pretty sticky ends at yeah. least two of them <laughs> we shall see we shall see Alrighty. i talked about this at the end of time of Cadet, but you weren't on that episode um so the missile stuff is a bit contentious mm. um we were talking about in the last chapter about sexual assault and stuff this a uh, bit with missile, her Stockholm syndrome she has with missile. Mm. Um, it takes on a new connotation in the modern world, especially because missile is a woman. Um, mm. And so, what is your take on all of that? Because some people like me um, 
look at it and, and see that this is the ultimate perversion of who Siri is, and it's important to her arc, and also it's important to show that all genders and all sexualities are capable of such horrendous things. Yeah. And, but some people take it very negatively because it is a bad representation, quote-unquote, bad representation of a lesbian relationship because one is straight up rapey another. So yeah, what is point. your thoughts on that dichotomy? Well, it was a pretty brutal, you know, bait and switch because, you know, at first it seems I was one of the men in the group, you know, the one she met at the the tavern when the, the guards Maybe. were taking a through. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when it seemed like he was going to, you know, blackmail her on her real identity so she can he can get away with him you know mistal steps in you think oh thank god for that but nope uh she's taken advantage of the situation you know she's mm -hmm. she's had her eyes on the new girl and yet uh, like i said I, the reason i didn't talk to you about that final chapter when i finished it was it left me very as you say icky so i didn't mm -hmm. talk about it for a good while like i just wanted to let it digest in my head <laughs> uh and then we you know we jump forward we see she's integrated into that cult shall we say uh it's definitely not a healthy found oh, family no. yeah uh and as you're saying it's a perversion because you know siri she's been looking for kind of mother figures in every you know adult woman she's met yennefer tris the the teachers at the temples and the schools and then we've got another older woman and she's totally taken advantage of that situation mm -hmm. uh and regarding the representation it is a very hard topic to talk about because oh, yeah. on one hand yes there is a lesbian representation hooray on the other it's extremely unhealthy but i guess mm. i suppose that's it's in real life you know just we have nowadays there's all this you know every time there's a new gay character in a tv show it's treated as this massive success massive step forwards and that is very valid but that doesn't inherently mean the character has to be a good person i suppose mm -hmm. uh and i i suppose andre was ahead of the time because this was the the 90s this, these books were coming out was is that right yeah uh the short stories were mid 80s these are 90s yeah yeah uh also gay marriage is still illegal in poland to this day mm -hmm. the, these books are very transgressive for their culture and their time period oh uh, i've mentioned this before to you abortion is still illegal in poland mm -hmm. Um, and this, these books straight up say it is a woman's right to choose. Like, there's no bare bones about it. Mm. And it's just like, damn, Sapkowski's just not even holding back. Yeah. Like... <laughs> uh, and we've had this discussion in the past about the question if Netflix will, will adapt this properly. Because I imagine, mm -hmm. I don't think, I don't think this will be a, I think this will be a lose-lose situation for them. Because, you know, no matter which path they take, I think they will piss off a certain mm -hmm. demographic you know if they if they don't do it faithfully they'll annoy the fans but if they do it faithfully they'll annoy certain people online who are like how dare you do you know you do this demonic kind of representation so mm -hmm. i don't think they're in an easy position because this is a you know a western show adapting uh, a polish story so i imagine that kind of representation shift can't be an easy task for them yeah it's I don't think that they have the balls to do it, personally. Mm -hmm. um, and this, I never thought they did, but I was holding out hope. And then uh, season two crushed it with his very first episode with Grain of Truth. One of your favorite mm -hmm. short stories. Yeah. They changed the moral of that story uh, in their adaptation. Um, in the short story, he is a bad man because of what he did. He's a monster. Mm -hmm. 
because he raped this woman and he put on the outside who he was. And now the villain, many years removed from that, is regretful and is sorrowful and is trying to make amends. The monster is now trying to not be the monster. Mm -hmm. He's rehabilitating. And, um, uh, and there's this, you know, wonderful sense of redemption in him in the short story of, you know, it, it requires time, it requires care, it requires, you know, love to really, you know, rehabilitate someone. In the show, he keeps what really cursed him secret for the entire episode until the end, reveals mm -hmm. it, and Geralt effectively says, kill yourself. Yeah. And then walks away. That's inherently a different uh, message. That's in yeah. a different moral. And it is a one that goes against the grain, ironically of the name, yeah. of the short story. The short story was about how bad people still have good in them, and they mm -hmm. can be redeemed, given time and properly ability to realize what they did. Uh, the show says bad people are always bad people. Yeah. Yeah, I think when we first discussed this around when after I watched season two, I think I was bit too light on that when i was talking when we we're talking about story i think mm -hmm. i was trying to be uh too fair to it but you know now a lot of time has passed i i will be more openly dismissive towards it uh, you know for those exact reasons you've been talking about how that was a micro story that worked for in its it was excellent in its simplicity and it still had a great meaning to it in how it portrayed that kind of character but then as you say with the netflix version it does revert to the Kind, let's say Western typical. This person did a bad thing. He is forever bad. Instead of mm -hmm. you know, it's too black and white. It needs more layers of, of gray to it. Mm -hmm. With their change of grain of truth, I doubt Missile will not only rape Siri, but they will get a relationship with the Netflix show. That is guaranteed because that is representation, yeah. and that's going to be great for marketing. And then every Pride Month in June, Netflix will have a poster of all their LGBT characters and stuff. Yep. Those two in the middle. Yep, and it's going to be a wonderful site for book readers yeah. as a rapist and a clear Stockholm Syndrome is is a lovey-dovey relationship of all niceness and flowers, mm. and I'm not looking forward to that. I, I've gotten to the point that I'm de seriously debating not watching the Netflix show anymore, and that, as they get closer and closer to this, I just have that sinking feeling. They've already cast Missile, um, mm. and so, like... I just doubt it. I seriously yeah. doubt it. My theory on how they could have it both ways is maybe it starts off healthy, but then as it goes along, Mistle gets too clingy, and then it still has to escape that situation. Uh, I don't want them to take that path necessarily, but I think that's the best of both worlds they could possibly take. Yeah, yeah there, there's ways you could work it, but like, I just... The people running that show, I don't have the greatest faith in. Um, mm. and, um, and just, I just don't feel it. I, I doubt it's going to go that way. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that I expect in later books are being changed as hell. Amir just straight up said through the entire bloody court that, uh, uh, series his daughter. So I guess that entire mystery, which takes up a large portion of this chapter, mm. um, is just non-existent in the show. So, you know, um, who knows? There's a lot of stuff that I'm... I'm not looking forward to seeing how they twist and change. And this is one of them of just, no, like Siri is bisexual. And that is, that is a fair read on her character. Sipkowski has even said so, uh, but 
to say the missile relationship is healthy is to be disingenuous. Um, and I think in the current times of the the want for representation and stuff, that would lead to them making choices that will, will not lead to great storytelling and can be very icky in discussing things online, mm. I, I think. Um, you know, they could do a 180 and impress me, but I doubt it. <laughs> and, and I guarantee, like, this this scene right here in the show, if they do this scene, it's going to be portrayed as a Yas Queen moment where she kills the homophobe. Uh, and not the, 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 the scary reality that our little girl theory has lost her way, and all she cares about is the immediate want. Uh, and that she took a life, but that didn't matter. Her candy floss got ruined. Um, and I fear that's going to send the wrong message. Yeah, I agree. The, these books aren't fluffy. They aren't nice. There are times when they can be definitely hilarious. Th this chapter has one of the, the most famous hilarious moments. But at the same time, it is, it is a philosophical cheaties. And um, I don't think that they really have the ability to do it. That's just my opinion. But moving on from the series stuff, nice and dark and miserable, let's go to the much lighter section of the Dandelion and Geralt escape, mm -hmm. uh, uh, in which uh, Dandelion goes, they've killed me, after he gets shot one time. Um, so that entire thing of uh, the, the rescue mission, Regis exposing himself to be the vampire, then Kahir coming into things, First of all, I want to get your opinions on Kahir, because he has been appearing since Blood of Elves, but we haven't had a name for him until last book. And then he's now a main character, and he's been in the show as well. Um, and I'm going to assume you didn't put two and two together, because there's a lot of characters that you've went, oh, wait, that's that character from that TV show? No, actually, this is the one oh? time I, I did connect it. I think oh, wow. even I can tell when a <laughs> book describes a guy with a massive, you know, in practical helmet i think i can <laughs> connect it to a, a tv character um but yeah i was i, I didn't realize he become so big as the series went on so that's a that's a neat touch i guess so i guess that's one example of the netflix show taking the advantage of hindsight to uh yeah. get prepared for that kind of arc that's neat uh and i'm glad that this chapter is finally giving him stuff to do because he had that fake out death in the previous few chapters which I didn't buy, but I, I was kind of disappointed they, don't, they weren't using an opportunity to delve into it more. So I'm glad that even though I, we're at the tail end of this book now, I'm glad they're taking that opportunity to. Uh, and it adds a very interesting parallel between him and Geralt, because I already mentioned how Geralt's a dad, um, Emir is series nightmare, but they both kind of view themselves as series savior, which is kind of a twisted way Kahir is thinking about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, I'm yet to fully know his reasons and why he wants to help save Siri, but it could be redemption. Perhaps he has his own motives. Uh, I'm sure once again, you're smiling to yourself thinking, aha, <laughs> foolish Josh, he doesn't know. <laughs> but that's the, that's the fun of it all, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to find out what happens. I imagine at this point, you know, he's been fucked over by the Nilf Guardians. He had his second chance and he fucked that up. So <laughs> I guess at this point he's like, well, uh, Fuck it, if these guys don't want me, I'll just try to weasel my way back into the other side. <laughs> what I love about Kahir is that he's your knight character, and he's introduced as this overwhelming, almost demonic force in Blood of Elves. Mm. And 
as we get more and more from him, we begin to realize, you know, he's not perfect. You know, in Blood of Elves, he has that, that scene where he comes out of jail and he's been uh, fucked over and Amir basically says, you got one more chance at this, son. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and then in Time of Contempt, when Siri unmasks him, she sees he's just a kid. He's like 20 mm-hmm. years old. He's he He's just a guy, you know. He wasn't some demonic evil force of you know, vileness, just a kid Mm. and a kid who is way over his head. And that is playing into things. He's the black knight. That's really a white knight, a savior who takes the form of a demon. In other words, he is Geralt. I was going to say Batman, but yes, that works too. (laughs) Yeah. The, 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 the monster hunter, the evil vile monster hunter, who's actually a really nice guy. (laughs) <laughs> um, I really like the idea of taking a character from Nilfgaard who's grown up in that climate, who's just weighing over his head, and then just going, no, th- th- there's something more important here, and I'm going to focus on that. I-, I really like that angle of him. You know, the show went its own way with him, and while I do agree, they could have taken a lot of advantage of introducing him uh, very early on in hindsight and, and giving him more development in Nilfgaard before he turned coats. But um, they also took that time to have him slaughter an entire um, household, making him a mass murderer. So I wonder mm-hmm. how he's going to be redeemed uh, because Shoka here is a vile, vile man, unlike the kid who's weighing over his head in the books. So um, who knows? But Kahir is part of the outsiders within outsiders as we were talking mm, about yes with this chapter revealing reaches is true a nature uh being a vampire and then um uh kahir being the Nilfgaardian who insists he's not a Nilfgaardian. he's from vico Vero. It, it this chapter quite literally ends with everybody talking about the hansa of you know we have the witcher who's not a witcher we have the dryad who's not a dryad we have the vampire who's not a vampire we have the Nilfgaardian who's not a Nilfgaardian. You know, we we best stay incognito, otherwise we'll be noticed. <laughs> and and, and Milfa goes, or laugh. Yeah, that's on my list of uh, standout quotes. I can't yeah. The outcast with outcast. We brought that up last chapter, but we didn't really discuss it heavily. So, what is your thoughts now that the Hansa is truly formed and we got the true D and D feel? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Geralt, Dandelion, uh, Milva, Regis, Kahir. Well, what is your take on all of them just being outcasts with an outcast? And but finding each other and dealing with that and being these weirdos. I love it. I, I think I told you very early on in this series that I absolutely adore the found family trope. And this is a bit more twisted take on it. It's not so much the typical, you know, father-mother dynamic. It's just a bunch of, you know, grown men and women just mushed together. Mm-hmm. But again, I just I love the story tale of outsiders fi- finding each other and finding purpose within each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's so much potential, I think, there's, there's going forwards. I mean, you, you could just have Geralt and Kahir team up, and I'd be very interested, but now you've got mm-hmm. a fucking vampire in the mix. Like, <laughs> hell yeah, give me more of that. That's, that's going to be fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that this, you know, this chapter is very action-heavy with the escape plan. It's very exposition-heavy with all the jumping back and forth of perspective. You know, we could see what the elves are up to, uh, what the prisons are up to. Mm-hmm. But I really appreciate that the last leg of this chapter took the time to have, you know, this core group, you know, just to, to ease in or another. You know, Gelt's trying to get out of Dodge. He has his typical 
oh, I am the lone wolf. This is my quest. This is my redemption journey. And everybody's like, fuck you and your lone wolf shit. Wolves are in packs. Sit down and have your soup. <laughs> and uh, you mentioned this in the message. It's a great way to rip the safety blanket that Geralt's been using this whole time. You know, just mm-hmm. give it one final spit and trample in the dirt. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, Milva makes the blanket quite literal when she's like, have you noticed? He, he He's all talk. He just mm. talks and talks and talks and hopes you don't pay attention. And he wraps himself up into that and hopes that no no one will ever dare to pull it off. Uh, and so, like, everybody's just kind of done with him. Yeah. And the the deconstruction of Geralt as a character has been ongoing for a while. But now mm. we got his friends. And one thing I like, it's a recurring motif through this book, and it cracks me up every time. Did you notice that both Kahir and Regis were threatened to be killed by Geralt mm-hmm. twice? Yeah. Twice each. And he never does it. <laughs> um, he's just constantly threatening them. And then like, yeah, whatever. Well, it's interesting with the Geralt and Regis threats because, uh, you know, Regis is like, ah, you, you know where I live now. You are a witcher. It is in your nature to kill me. Uh, I wonder how much would people pay you to kill me? And Geralt says in the most Geralt way possible that he won't kill him, that he doubts anyone will be able to afford the price. And that's his way of saying, I secretly respect you. I don't want to actually kill you. And I, yeah. I love that Regis just acknowledged that. Like he, he took some pride out of that. He's very flattered by it. Yeah. Uh, it, it, Regis asked, asked him like three different times, like how much. And he just, <laughs> he keeps sidestepping the issue. And he's like, I... How high does the price have to be? Seriously, girl. And he's like, very bloody high. And he's yeah. like, oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I just really like how Geralt never sets the price. Just going, no, I just won't. Like, I, I just yeah. don't care. I'm just too old for this anymore. <laughs> uh, chapter two, I believe it was, when uh, they had the, the multiple run-ins with Kihir. And he kept threatening him. And then they kept meeting back up. And then he would never do anything. And Kihir would just ride off. It's, it's like this again with Regis. If, don't come near me again, otherwise I will kill you. He comes near him again. Don't come near me again, or I will kill you. He comes near him again. Um, and it's just, Geralt is such a phony... And he has mm. lived in that life for so long that he can't really imagine himself outwardly. And the irony, of course, is he's a witcher of the wolf school. Uh, and he likes to think of himself as a lone wolf. The irony, of course, is that wolves don't hunt alone. They hunt in yeah. <laughs> And his own pride, his own hubris gets in the way of everything. And he wants people to be saying if he cares about these people. So he wants you to go back, you know, you know, turn around. This is a suicide mission. And um, Milva had a great line a couple chapters ago of, oh, the stories they will tell of the witcher who traversed uh, the Aruga to go and save the princess from Nilfgaard on a rowboat. <laughs> um, and it's just like, everybody is just... We have dealt with him enough times. They all yeah. know. They, they, Regis is the most newest to, to them. And Kahir a little bit, but Kahir has, you know, other stuff history. going on. Yeah, yeah uh, other history. But they all have seen through this comfort blanket. And they're just like, no, 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 Geralt. Just shut the fuck up. Yeah. Seriously. Especially Dandelion. And he has the incredible line of, perhaps you'll realize the only activity worth doing alone is wanking. <laughs> you know there's a lot of things about Geralt I'd love and one thing I love is that he is you know you brought up the autism spectrum read which I think is a very fair read um but for me it's always been a sense of mental health problems of he hides behind this blanket because he doesn't really know 
how to interact with people. I think I brought this up when we very first talked on The Witcher was that he is mm. he's a very intelligent man, but he has very low emotional intelligence. He doesn't really know how to navigate around people a whole lot, and when he does, he's very matter-of-fact about things. And because of that, I relate to him a lot because um, one of the things that I do as someone with mental health problems to get along with people is I crack jokes. Uh, I become the clown of the scene so that uh, you know I can better navigate people because I'm I, I struggle in that aspect. Um, and so for him, in order to you know get rid of that awkwardness, he hides behind his Witcher self. His Witcher self is a facade. It's all made up by him. Uh, it's all based in just complete absurdity. But he does it because it makes him feel better. And now he has a group that is so accustomed to him. And people like Yen could always cut through that. But these other people are all just like, no, this is who you are. This is who you really are. We're not buying it. We're going to sit down here. We're going to eat some soup and we're going to have a good time. And that really reminds me when I uh, got into a, a big friend group uh, who've been my friends for nearly a decade now of just they cut through all of my buffoonery to see the real me. And oh, I just really relate to Geralt in that aspect. And I really uh, like how... You know, if you've been paying attention, you know, a lot of people will look at Gal and go, oh, he's the he's the broody monster hunter who takes no shit from anybody. That's all of a side. And I've been pointing this out since the beginning. Uh, and so that probably helped your viewing of it. But yeah. it, it always amuses me when people are like, oh, Gal wasn't always the badass monster. I'm like he never was. He's just this big old teddy bear who's really afraid of feeling things. And so he just tries to wrap himself up and get away from all of that. And it doesn't work because the people close to him go, oh, that's nice. But uh, we need to deal with this, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think it's Grain of Truth that really lays out the, the blueprint of what makes Geralt Geralt. Because you, mm -hmm. you mentioned in the past how the first story, The Witcher, uh, you know, Andre hadn't really figured out the character yet because he's, he's too violent and all that jazz. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you've got Grain of Tooth, and he's that more subtle kind of guy. You know, he's he's clever without being uh, too flashy about it. Mm -hmm. You know, I just wish that story was adapted better. Like, you know, if that was the first story or something like that in Netflix version, the audience would have understood the character better. Mm -hmm. I mean, canonically, uh, according to Sipkowski, Grain of Truth is one of the first adventures he goes on. So technically, yeah, canonically... Yeah. It is one of the first uh, Geralt stories, but uh, we do have a new comic adaptation of Great Truth, so hopefully it's good. Mm -hmm. This uh, this chapter, you know, the, the, the big focus is the Geralt and dealing with all his uh, stubborn absurdity and um, his protectiveness and cutting through all that with his friends. But, um, you know, we flash to various other different things one of the things that i find amusing is that sipkowski takes the time to frame the hansa and people who see the hansa almost like the fellowship of the ring from <laughs> lord of the rings they even have um i believe Geralt says uh what are we some sort of fellowship <laughs> like uh, oh yes the the fellowship of idiots yeah what are we some kind of suicide squad <laughs> 
Lord of the Rings is the premier, most popular fantasy work of all time. Yep. Um, and when Sukowski was writing this, only if about a decade prior or so, Lord of the Rings had been translated to Polish. And so um, Lord of the Rings was very uh, well known in Poland at that time because it was just being circulated. And there's a lot of little itty-bitty things he does to jab at Tolkien and jab at Lord of the Rings and say, this is ridiculous, this is funny. There's one particular thing in uh, in Lady of the Lake that will be incredibly obvious, and it cracks me up every time I read it. Right. Um, it has to do with eagles. When you understand, you'll understand. Cool. I mean, the eagles are already a massive joke in the, in yes. the fandom because of the movies. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Well, I, I know that it's an issue in the books because... Tolkien himself acknowledged uh, in letters how how much of a bad plot device the Eagles are, but it's incredibly more so with the movies, uh, especially the Hobbit trilogy. <laughs> yeah, um, but you'll understand when you get Lady of the Lake because it's very blatant the joke he's making. Um, but with this, there's just this sense of absurdity uh, with the, the the fellowship of the Hansa of all these weirdos, these misfits, these outsiders, all banding together to go and save this special person on the special quest. And a couple chapters ago, if you remember, they got lost. <laughs> um, and uh, he directly makes fun of Tolkien's naming conventions, where uh, Zoltan goes, "Oh, it's oh," and and Dandelion goes, "What?" What, oh what and he went no no it's called the O and it's making fun of how in uh, fantasy we always have these grand names for everything but in reality it's always like normal names like you you live in England I'm sure you know about Torpin Hal Hill yep. which is just hill 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 yeah. and Sahara Desert 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 because Sahara is Arabic for desert. Yeah. Um. So, like, he's been constantly doing this, but it really comes to focus in here where we have the Fellowship of the Ring, and it's supposed to be grand, but they're all weirdos, and they're all eating fish soup, and ain't it ridiculous? Yeah. And in the very same chapter, you know, when Geralt and Dandelion are arrested, Dandelion's like, oh, don't worry, they'll rescue us. And Geralt's like, they're either dead or they've either buggered off. We're screwed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he just, he just has no faith in these guys, yet they rescue him anyways. Mm-hmm. So he's got a great team on his back. Mm-hmm. It's just a fun, you know, th- th- this, this book I often call the Geralt book because it really, it tears Geralt down, reassembles him, and makes him the man that I know he'll be at the end of the saga. He's got some more other issues he's going to have to deal with. Um, but, like... You know, the man he is at the end of this book is really the man we see at the end of Lady of the Lake. And so there's a lot of playfulness with everything that Spikowski has done over the past short stories and books to say, this is our main character, and we're going to call him an idiot, and we're going to tear him down, bring him back up, and expose how ridiculous this entire set of circumstances is. But we're also going to play it straight. Uh, and I respect that. You know, there's a lot of fiction especially modern day, really, you know, you can either be dark and serious or you can be funny and ha ha ha. There's no middle ground. Mm. Um, And I think there should be, you know, um, Babylon 5, which I covered just prior to this, you know, in the same episode in which it talks about eugenics and the uh, passivity of just standing by and not doing anything when someone is in trouble, it also has a scene in which a character quote-unquote has sex with another character because they're an alien, they don't understand what sex is, so they just sing a song and dance and think that's sex. 
and it's hilarious. And this is the same episode, by the way. <laughs> um, and that's okay. I, I like how Sapkowski is simultaneously being tongue-in-cheek and satirizing all of fantasy, especially Lord of the Rings. Same time, the, for the characters, it's very real. And so he treats it with the reverence and seriousness of these characters. You know, when Siri is brought up, Geralt switches gears from being grumpy man to being very angry very quickly because you dare hurt my daughter, you know? And this, this dichotomy exists in the exact same chapter. And I think a lot of modern fiction has forgotten that there's a balance to be had there. Mm. And so I really, I really appreciate that. I don't know about you. No, you make a very good point. I'm very much drawn to stories that have that balance. Uh, you know, my favorite movie of this year so far is Everything, Everywhere, All of the Time. Uh, it's an incredibly surrealistic, batshit insane movie that juggles so, you know, it's a multiverse movie and it really embraces that concept of so many wild alternative universes. And it's very ambitious in that scope of all these universes of how many visual styles you can have. But it's, I think it's more so ambitious in how it all ties together to the emotional core of the story. Uh, it's a story that made me laugh incredibly hard at random weird moments, and it made me weep a lot towards the end. So I deeply respect stories that can have that balance <laughs> and aren't afraid to, you know, have your cake and eat it too. My only other major question is, you know, we talked about Siri, we talked about the Geralt, we got a brief look at Isagrim Felatorna, who's mm-hmm. going to become important later. Ah. Um, we got uh, some information about the, the people who murdered Codringer and Finn of Shiru uh, from the prison of Drakenborg and the, the, the irony of the way the prisoners are, are melancholic about their brotherhood, that they'll sing songs about the executions. But one of the more interesting aspects is the site we get into Nilfgaard. There are two aspects of it. First, we get Asairvar Enid and Fingela Vigil uh, talking, and there is this dichotomy between Northern Mages and Nilfgaardian Mages. Northern Mages are obsessed with appearance, status, power, whereas Nilfgaardian Mages are on the leash of the Emperor, and so they're much more reserved. They still have those ambitions, but they're much more up to a lesser extent. Mm-hmm. Um, the through line of all these different stories, from Falatorna, the, the prison in Drakenborg, and, um, and Asairva Enid and Fringilla Vigo, is all of them finding out that the Siri at Nilfgaard is not real Siri, mm. and that Amir has been lying, and that this is a fake Siri, and that some sort of conspiracy going on with Vilgefort and Ryans and some other stuff going on that we'll find out later. So I just want your opinion on um, the Lodge. Obviously it hasn't been formed yet, but uh, I already talked about their first unofficial meeting, so... What is your take on the differences between the Northern Mages and the Guardian Mages and the plans with fake Siri? What What's your thoughts on those? Well, I love what the Lodge of Sorceresses is doing in, in actually looking at uh, the female sorcerers and how each, let's say, district, you know, each side treats them. Uh, it's a very interesting mashup. Uh, and it's I like how they talk about, you know, men have had their time. They fucked over magic. We're here to fix things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's a, it's a bold choice for Philippa to have Nilfgaardian sources on the team, but I'm guessing she's doing it to have that kind of balance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, F- Philippa is many things, and one of which is is she legitimately believes what she's doing. Mm. Um, and part of the characters examining do the ends justify the means. Um, and um, that's the thing about Philippa is that 
she true she's an ambitious son of a bitch and she is uh nasty and vile when she needs to be but she also legitimately thinks that magic needs to be protected from corruption mm. and that there should be a guiding hand to ensure that there is an altruism to her things that's mm. why she's such a complicated character that's why i get annoyed when people say oh she's a villain because there is a lot more there yeah but you know, she doesn't feature heavily in this chapter, that'll be next chapter. But I just really like how Nilfgaard, we've never had a classic witch, and then when Sire first shows up, she looks like the classic witch. She even got a cat, uh, which Triss calls out. Uh, she's got a black cat, um, and she's got the crooked nose and uh, the, the the weird pigmentation. You know, she's just, she looks like your classic witch. And so, like, your Nilfgaardian sorcerers are all about the duty, Whereas Northern Mages are all about the appearance. Yeah, the reputation. Mm -hmm. So maybe the combination in the Lodge may might prove fruitful. Who knows? Um, but I just really like that dichotomy. Yeah, uh, and I think what really stuck out to me this particular scene w with the two witches, well, sorcerers, mm -hmm. is the, the talk about the, the locket of hair. You know, they talk about how Emir has a, a locket of Ciri's hair that they can date back to when she was six years old. So this whole time, they've been led to believe he's been after them for three years. That's bullshit. He's been after her for way longer. So even though I already know what happens uh, because of Netflix and from this podcast, it's a clever little uh, mm -hmm. you know clue to what's really going on behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. The the lock of hair thing, you know, everybody is kind of finding out. You know, Isagrim found out that there's some nefarious stuff going on, and that Ryan's and Vilgoforts have turned coded on uh, Amir, and that and that the the, the Siri situation is uh, different than what it appears. Deepstra mm. found out uh, through the prisoner. Thus, Vilipa found out, which means the Lodge will know. Asire knows and has definitive hard proof which you share with Fringilla. So all of this is sort of leading to the 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 disguise of the fake series sort of falling down. And when she showed up in Time of Contempt, there was this hint that a lot of them weren't quite sure if she was really the real deal. But, mm -hmm. you know, the Emperor is word is law. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the end of the, the end of it. And so what is your take on that entire situation of Fixiri in general and how that is being handled as the, the, the main through line of the politics situation? Well, it's interesting that we don't actually know who the Fixiri is. We, mm -hmm. you know, we can assume it's this poor girl who's dragged in this situation. Uh, and it's, it kind of ties into the themes, like much like real Siri, she's just being taken advantage of, you know, in the context of the narrative and all the people around her, she doesn't actually matter. For all I know, she could get much more focus later, uh, like a real name would be would be nice one. She doesn't have one, to my memory, because of the way she's been programmed. If you uh, if you remember when she showed up and she almost fucked up Siri's entire title, and St Stella Congreve is on the other side going, get this right, get this right. <laughs> Um, and so basically we get this hint that she has been basically brainwashed into thinking she's Siri. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the real world, uh, you know, the issue of Anastasia, the last princess of Russia? Uh, about how, vaguely. Yeah, she went missing and then there were a lot of, you know, pretenders coming up saying, uh, oh, I'm the lost princess. But yeah, that that is an interesting comparison to the real world, I think, about people, you know, pretenders 
trying to take advantage of this missing person to fill into that vacuum to get that kind of glory or in this case someone else using that puppet to their advantage well we'll never get a name she does have her own arc uh and there'll be some stuff going on there and you just feel really sad for her because you know she was this small noble family um that all died in the slaughter and she was just picked up and then thrown in the situation and she has been brainwashed to basically say my name is siri blah 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 Mm -hmm. um and she's nothing beyond that and as you were saying, it, it ties in not only historically, uh, but also it parallels Siri, the real Siri, in the fact that this is a girl who was thrown in this horrible situation, and no one ever asked what she wanted. Instead, they have told her who she is and what mm. she is. And that's it. That's as far as it goes. And real Siri has been straight through that, and she still is. And so it's just the the lack of agency and the the loss of that. I also think that it it provides a nice personal scale through this political situation, because I talked about this many times before of how Witcher is a micro story within a macro story. Big epic fantasy like Lord of the Rings macro. This is more micro. It's it's a smaller scale story that's taking place in a macro story. Mm. We have all these politics. We have a war going on and all this stuff. But the way we navigate through it, our main through line, is these characters discovering something the audience already knew, and that being heavily connected to one of our main characters, Siri. So it provides a reason to care about the politics. Because at the end of the day, ultimately, all we're really rooting for is Geralt to go rescue Siri, and for mm. Yen, Yen, Geralt, and Siri to be reunited as a family, and all everything to be hunky-dory. Um, mm. And so to get us invested in these larger scale things that are affecting the micro scale without actually having to show it because then that would dilute the purpose of the story, we need to find a way to emotionally resonate with the reader. And thus, Fixiri is the perfect avenue to go that way. Yeah. Uh, we were talking about the show and how they've done here. One of the things I really liked in the show is that in the first season, they introduced Fixiri. Huh. Yeah, if you remember, Calanthe tries to pawn her off to Geralt and saying, this is Ciri. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah I remember now. Her lines are directly taken from the Stella Congreve section of Time of Contempt of, say it as we practiced. <laughs> Ultimately, Geralt sees through the guys mm. um, and calls Calanthe out on this. You, you, you speak of a mother's love while trying to offer someone else's daughter as your own to me. Uh, how hypocritical do you appear to be? Great line by Geralt. Very rare in that show. Probably Henry Cavill's line. <laughs> yeah, I'm interested to see because they introduced her early. That means that they're probably going to go through with this story, um, even though they've changed some stuff about Amir's plan. So I'm interested yeah. to see how that turns out because they've already set her up in the show. Oh, that's pretty clever. Yeah, I thought that was actually a very clever move on their behalf. I, I try and give that show credit when I can. <laughs> <laughs> Any questions on your end? Uh, yes, it's about the name of the group, the uh, Hunza. Is that, is that what we're yes. calling them? Yeah, so I, don't, I haven't reached the final chapter of the book yet, so maybe that's when it's introduced. But I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about the meaning of that name, of that of that title for this new D&D group. A Hansa is an old medieval term. It means a league originally constituted of merchants of various free German cities dealing abroad in the medieval period and later the cities themselves and organized to secure uh, greater safety and privileges in trading. 
um, and it became a wider used word for just medieval merchant guilds in general. That is from Merriam-Webster. Um, so, you know, it's just a fancy way of saying the party or the group or the company um, with medieval connotations. Um, you know, the that's the true meaning of it. I, I just like it because, it, you know, it, it avoids the, the fellowship, as we were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Don't um, want to get copyright. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, and it's just, when you think of, like, it's a D&D party, and when you... When you're playing D&D, you always say the party or the group. And uh, in fantasy, it's always the main cast, the ensemble. It's, uh, you know, the crew. Mm. It's always these very generic terms. And so to have a, a, a more fancier word of saying the exact same thing, that tends to be Sapkowski's style. He uses Latin in a world in which Latin didn't even exist. <laughs> he's being playful. I mean, he is, he knows 15 languages. He's hes a weirdo. He likes to do stuff like that. And yeah. so it has no greater meaning beyond the medieval connotation of it. Um, I just think it's a really... It's a neat word instead of using the generic stuff. Uh, oftentimes, it's also translated as company um, mm-hmm. as well. So and those are used interchangeably. So there's no real special meaning to it. Gotcha. I've just been referring to them as a squad in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, having read it all the time, you know, many times, you know, I just always refer to them as Hansa. My phone automatically corrects that word to be capitalized too. That's amazing. <laughs> Was there a significance that you were looking for in particular? Uh, I guess so, yeah. I thought I figured it was some kind of nickname, the... Uh, the North or Nifflegard would would give them. No, I forget what chapter we finally call it the Hansa, but uh, that's a name that they give themselves, so it's like nothing gotcha. special. In any other stuff? Yeah, there's one little point I like to yeah. inquire about. So during the you know the beautiful uh, beatdown of Geralt's character scene, uh, Regis talks about how it doesn't really matter to Geralt where he's going because being in motion is everything. The goal is nothing that he. That uh, now he knows Siri is no longer there. Geralt is just gonna rampage across the land till he finds her, uh, and he's just pointing out to him that you know you think as long as you're moving, you're not inactive. Uh, and I was wondering, to me, that felt like it could be a possible critique on other writers, other uh, authors who write you know huge epics without any actual end game plan in mind. Uh, and I was wondering if you got that kind of similar read as well. That's actually a brilliant point that I didn't really think of. I thought of it as the Witcher mentality. That their main training course is called the Pendulum. What does the Pendulum always do? It moves. Back and forth. Yep. It cannot stop, because the moment it stops, it stops working. And the way Witchers fight, they fight like they're dancers. They, they use uh, pirouettes and great spins and stuff and these very athletic and agility-based things that no normal fighter would ever conceive of doing. Um, and so to me, it was always about this is what Geralt has been trained to do. Move. Keep on the move. Don't think. Don't, don't feel emotion. Just move. On the path. All the time. And so that's it's part of the comfort blanket for him. Uh, that was always been my read on it. Now that you're saying that it could be a critique of writers who do not plan out their stories, that is an interesting meta-commentary, I can definitely see. Yeah. I just feel like bringing Vin up because I know he's quite meta with, with the story sometimes. Oh, yeah. 
it is an excellent point. I think there are merits to uh, sometimes being a discovery writer, uh, you know, of not knowing the ending exactly. Yeah, J.J. <laughs> <J>. Abrams. <clears throat> there are potentials there. You know, a lot of recent stuff here lately has been very bad examples of that kind of thing. But there are good examples out there, and there are uh, times in which that actually comes in handy. Uh, I know Neil Gaiman one time gave a chat about uh, when he was writing Sandman. He was mm -hmm. primarily a novelist at the time, and, you know, comics, you know, he loved comics, but he'd never written one. And so he realized the thing about books is if you come up with something while you're ch writing chapter seven and you're like, oh, that's really good. I need to see that earlier. You can go right back to chapter one and write that in. You're all <laughs> fine and dandy. It all makes it look perfect and all pre-planned. When you're writing a comic, it has to come out monthly. Yeah. You don't have that luxury. You got to write that script. You got to write it now. And there's no time for that kind of stuff. And so some, a lot of comic writers are thinking on their feet. And uh, he was like, it's a different skill. It's a skill he'd never really thought of before. And so there is a merit to that kind of writing, if done well. If done mm. badly, well, we know the ramifications of that. Yeah, perhaps Game of Thrones is the basic, biggest uh, cultural example of that now. Yeah, and, like, it's definitely a fair criticism, and I can definitely see that um, as, a, um, uh, as a meta thing that he's doing. But to also be fair to him, when he wrote the first short story, he had no idea what he was doing. So, yeah. you know, maybe he's making fun of himself. Um, you know, uh, so yeah, I'm either pro or against discovery or pre-planning. You know, Babylon 5, my favorite thing in the entire world of TV, was pre-planned from day one uh, all the way to its end. It was always mm. going to be what it was. There were some changes to accommodate budget and to accommodate actors, but for the most part, as he says, about 85% of what he had planned was, you know, broadcast. Like, everything has meaning in that show. Even this minutest detail will come back. But there's also a merit to writing season by season and figuring things out. Battlestar Galactica, a lot of people hate the ending. I actually don't mind the ending all that much. I, I think it has problems, but it's not that bad, actually. What makes that show have such wonderful pacing is when you do your research and you find out they had nothing planned. They were writing season by season by the seat of their pants, and somehow, up until the ending, of course, they made it work, and it made it seem seamless. So there are times when that can turn out good. Uh, Deep Space Nine is another example, one that doesn't have a bad ending. Uh, the people, a lot of people like the ending of Deep Space Nine. Deep Space Nine didn't even have its main plot thread for two bloody seasons because it wasn't even thought of. But the moment they start thinking of it, you know, in the, they were writing season by season. They didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know how it was going to conclude. It still turned out one of the best Star Trek shows ever made. Mm -hmm. So that kind of style of writing can work if done by someone who can compensate for the on-the-fly thinking. Uh, there's also pros uh, and cons to pre-planning. Sometimes pre-planning means that things can get shuffled around. Great example, Babylon 5. One of the main plot threads that is being set up since the very first episode didn't happen because the actor had to leave due to health reasons. Huh. So JMS had to write around that and try and make it work. And it does work, 
But some of those early episodes, when they didn't know about this and didn't know that the actor was going to have to leave, it's very obvious it's heading in an entirely different direction than where we ended up because the actor had to leave due to health. And um, I'm intentionally keeping names out because I know that you may watch it sometime. Mm-hmm. The, there are pros to planning a story and there's cons to it, just like there's pros and cons to not planning out a story. Um, so... I guess it could be meta-commentary. It's not a bad angle to read that line. And it, I think Sapkowski is also self-aware enough to make fun of himself. Um, and considering he didn't have a plan when he was writing the first short story, um, and so bits of that short story kind of have to be retconned, um, like killing people in that tavern, I think it's a tongue-in-cheek thing. Uh, it's definitely a valid read. What made you think that it was meta-textual in nature? It's just as I was rereading it, and, you know, we've had our discussions in the past in this recording alone about how meta he could be. So it, it just seemed, I don't know why my mind went to that specific angle, but I think there was precedent for it that led me there. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. It is a perfectly valid read. Thank you for joining me once again. Um, <laughs> and Josh should be on for at least one chapter of Tower of Swallows. Yep. Uh, and next chapter, we head into the formation of the Lodge. See you then. Bye. Till next time. Bye.